Good afternoon and welcome to the Council of American Ambassadors Roundtable Discussion with Ambassador Christopher Landau. I'm Kathleen Sheehan and I'm the Executive Director of the Council. Just two brief housekeeping notes before we get going. Uh, first, that we are recording today's conversation and it will be posted on our website afterwards so that members who could not attend live can watch it later. And second, we strongly encourage questions from the audience. Um, to submit your questions, all you have to do is go to the bottom of your screen and click on the Q&A button and then write in your question. And with that, I'm going to pass the microphone over to the Council's Senior Vice President, Ambassador Philip Hughes, who is going to introduce today's speaker and moderate the event. And so with that, Ambassador Hughes, the floor is yours. Thanks very much, Kathleen. And it's my great pleasure this afternoon uh, to uh, welcome to uh, the Council's Roundtable uh, Ambassador Christopher Landau, who recently uh, completed his mission in Mexico City as the U.S. Ambassador to Mexico. A graduate of Harvard College and of Harvard Law School, uh, Chris spent uh, some 30 years in Washington legal practice, most of that time as a partner at Kirkland and Ellis, uh, where he headed the firm's appellate litigation practice. Uh, he's briefed and argued cases before the Supreme Court and all federal uh, courts of appeal and probably uh, federal district courts as well. Uh, he was even shortlisted by President Trump as a potential nominee to the Supreme Court. Early in his legal career, he was a uh, law clerk for Supreme Court Justices Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas, and has served as an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University's Law Center. But his diplomatic distinctions come from heading the country's largest diplomatic mission, uh, the uh, a mission to Mexico City. Uh, during his tenure there, he uh, uh, was marked by the entry into force of the US-Mexico-Canada uh, Free Trade Agreement and unprecedented binational bi cooperation on migration. He also spearheaded innovative public diplomacy efforts during the pandemic. Of course, Mexico is, was constantly in the news during uh, President Trump's administration. And of course, it's been a headline matter, the border crisis uh, in the months since President Biden has taken office. Um, so our conversation with Chris today couldn't be more timely or more topical. I should add that Chris is a, he was born into a foreign service family. His father, George Landau, served as ambassador to Paraguay, Chile, and Venezuela, and actually was also the president of the Americas Society and Council of the Americas in New York, and uh, put an indelible imprint on those Latin America-oriented organizations. I didn't get to work for George, but I got to work for his successors and appreciated all that he did for that organization. Uh, Chris is a trustee, by the way, of the US Supreme Court Historical Society and a director of the Diplomacy Center Foundation. So with that, let me give you Ambassador Chris Landau. Bill, thank you, Philip. Thank you so much for that introduction. I can't tell you how pleased I am to be with this group today and how honored I feel uh, to have joined your ranks uh, as former ambassadors. Uh, as uh, Philip mentioned, I come from a foreign service family. My father was an ambassador. So this was kind of like the family business for me. And uh, it was great after a 30 year frolic and detour in the law 
to, uh, to come back to my roots. And uh, I, I think it's wonderful that we have this kind of an organization that allows us all to uh, share our thoughts uh, and hopefully uh, to uh, influence the way that uh, our successors uh, handle things and that our country is represented in the world. Um, I uh, certainly know and, and uh, have tremendous respect for a number of you who I know are on this uh, call today. Uh, I don't know all of you. And it, it, for those that I don't yet know, I certainly hope that we can uh, change that in the near future because I, I feel like we've all gone through a very uh, unique experience. And uh, I think it's great that we have this council that allows us to uh, pool our knowledge and our experiences. I certainly feel like I uh, learned a lot of lessons uh, in this position and you know, I would love to be able to pass along uh, my, you know, kind of concluding thoughts to, you know, to anybody who comes uh, in the future, either to Mexico or any other post. Uh, I thought I would uh, divide my remarks today into to three parts. First, uh, talking a little bit about Mission Mexico itself, then talking about uh, my own experience in Mexico and my family's experience, because it was a shared experience. And finally, some more general thoughts about U.S.-Mexican relations. And I thought I might talk till, I don't know, maybe a little bit uh, past half past the hour uh, and then just open it up to, uh, to Q's and A's and, and have a discussion uh, with all of you. In terms of Mission Mexico, as Philip said, it's the largest diplomatic mission in the world in terms of number of people. Uh, the embassy in Mexico City is about half of the total. It's about 3,000 people altogether, of which the embassy is half. And there are nine consulates general, five of which are along the border and the other four in the interior, and another nine consular agencies. I didn't even know what a consular agency was. My, my dad was never in a country in a post with a consular agency. But basically, it's an um, outpost that just has contract personnel often uh, Americans who American citizens who live in the area to really provide services to American citizens. Um, and so th those actually are quite useful uh, outposts. So uh, altogether, there are uh, what 19 outposts, the embassy, nine consulates general and nine consular agencies uh, across Mexico. And that reflects the fact uh, that, you know, the, 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 that the relationship with Mexico is uh, so complex. Uh, you know, again, everything is, is supersized. Uh, in fact, we're building a new uh, chancery uh, for the embassy in Mexico City. The current one is from the, the early 60s uh, and it's long since been outgrown. I mean, all the, uh, I think my office is probably the only, the ambassador's office is probably the only one that's in its original form pretty much. Other ones have all gotten kind of jerry-rigged and cut in half, and there's lots of windowless offices. Um, the, the new chancery, I am told, will be 80% of the size of the entire State Department in Washington, which seems a little bit uh, excessive to me. Uh, but certainly, that was the, 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 the cornerstone was laid before I got there and is not expected to be finished for another, I don't know, year or two. Obviously, it got delayed by the pandemic. So, you know, that's a pretty, pretty long... Uh, process. It'll probably be six or seven years altogether for that process to play itself out. Um, you know, one thing, again, I, um, you know, being in a mission that has, you know, half the personnel outside the embassy, 
just presents some, some different challenges uh, as ambassador, uh, morale challenges. Uh, I was fortunate that I got out to visit all nine of the consulates general before the pandemic hit. In fact, I finished up my last visit to, to hit the last two of them in early March. So literally just a week or two before, uh, you know, we started to kind of have to shut things down uh, last year. So, you know, I think that was always a great, uh, it was great fun for me just to get to, to, to see the folks uh, doing a lot of the, the work in different parts of, of uh, Mexico. Of course, when I say 3000 people working there, the, the, the vast majority of them are Mexicans, the, 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 uh, the LES, locally employed staff. And, uh, you know, as I suppose a lot of you recognize, the, the LES uh, are in many ways the crown jewel of the embassy. And, and uh, I always tried to, you know, acknowledge their many, many contributions uh, to our mission. Um, you know, Mexico, one of the reasons that we have such a big footprint there is that more Americans visit Mexico than any other country by far. I mean, let's say in 2019, uh, there were 40 million Americans visited Mexico. Canada was next with about 15 million. And then your, uh, you know, UK was about four, uh, France and Italy about three. So you can get a sense that in Mexico, um, consular issues loom very large. Uh, there's also more Americans who live in Mexico than any other country in the world. This was actually something that was a little bit embarrassing to me always. People would ask me, you know, how many Americans live in Mexico? You think the American ambassador to Mexico could answer that question. But th there's a lot of uh, uncertainty there and there's no firm statistics. Uh, it's anywhere probably from a million to two million. Uh, and they fall into different buckets. I mean, you have retirees who buy a place in San Miguel de Allende or in uh, Los Cabos. Uh, but you also have a lot of, uh, you know, people who otherwise to all intents and purposes appear Mexican, but their, their parents went and gave birth in a hospital on the US side of the border and they got uh, birth, birthright citizenship uh, that way, but then you know, immediately came back to Mexico uh, and you know, are, are native Spanish speakers and, and whatnot. So um, you know, it, was, it was a very mixed bag in terms of you know, who the Americans in Mexico are and what services they might require from, from our, our mission. Um, you know, having so many Americans there obviously leads to, uh, you know, particularly uh, tricky issues. I, you all may remember in the news a couple of years ago, one of the, the, the worst days of my tenure was in, the, in November of 2019, when there was a Mormon family that was killed in northern Mexico, not far from the U.S. border, actually. That, that this is a family that had been in Mexico for, you know, probably more than a century. Uh, and... Uh, it appears to have been a, a, a terrible case of mistaken identity that the, 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 the bad guys from the drug cartels were waiting to ambush some rival cartel members and this family uh, just happened to drive up. But, you know, there, there are, uh, you know, just uh, lots of issues like that that come up in, in, in Mexico, uh, given, you know, just the, the, the physical closeness of our countries uh, with a, a 2000 mile border, as you can imagine. Uh, and, and just the number of people crossing the border both ways. In terms of the mission itself, it was incredible the number of agencies under, under our roof, or under our roofs, I should say. I mean, not only do we have all the law enforcement agencies like you might expect, like DEA and, and DHS and its Homeland Security Investigations, 
but also agencies like you know the Marshal Service, the, the IRS, lots of uh, criminals from the United States, uh, convicts, you know, flee to Mexico and have to be returned. Uh, and you know, we're seeking extradition not only of kind of the drug lords, as you might expect, but also of you know routine, you know, domestic violence uh, people. So you know, th th there's a constant stream of those issues. Um, you know, th I think there are more uh, parts of the U.S. government represented in the mission in Mexico than in any other mission. Again, as you might expect for a, a, a neighboring uh, country, we have APHIS for plant inspection services. And you know, we had an APHIS agent murdered uh, while I was there. Um, you know, there are water commissions trying to allocate the water equitably in the um, you know, Colorado River, the Rio Grande. Um, we have treasury uh has a big presence there for you know a lot of um, money laundering issues department of labor and department of energy have attaches there so this was actually a big change for my father's day um again as philip said he was ambassador in paraguay chile and venezuela in the in the 70s and 80s you know obviously i you know mexico's always been a more complicated post but it was a particular uh eye-opener for me that I'd say, you know, the majority of people under my control were not State Department people. And that just added a layer of complexity. In fact, I would say I had a lot less interaction with uh, folks in the State Department than in other agencies in the government, than with the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security and the White House. And so I think in that sense, Mission Mexico is probably somewhat unique, but I do get the sense that more generally throughout our diplomatic missions, the alphabet soup of government agencies has really increased and the, the percentage of state has, has shrunk somewhat, which is just an interesting uh, development. Again, it was, it was fascinating for me coming back to this world after having grown up in it you know, 40 years ago. Uh, my father retired in 85, uh, and right when I graduated from college. So I was, felt kind of like Rip Van Winkle, that I, you know, I was very familiar with this world through my family experience, and then really, uh, you know, left and, and had an entire career in the law, uh, and came back and, and it had really changed a lot. And I was always very interested to, to note the things that had changed. And, and to me, the, the real rise of, of other agencies with international uh, presence, uh, you know, beyond state, uh, was it was a real change. And, and one of the real challenges, I thought, was the need to uh, master the interagency process, uh, again, at least in, in um, Mexico. Again, you know, Mission Mexico is on the radar screen in Washington. We had lots of visits from, you know, at least until COVID hit, you know, from cabinet members, from CODELs. Um, you know, it, it was a challenge in, in, in that sense, or just, challenge may be the wrong word. It, it just was, it was an interesting uh, it was it was different than what I was used to. I mean, I can certainly assure you that when I was growing up in Paraguay, we were not getting many cabinet uh, visits. Um, you know, one interesting thing again is that whenever we did get anybody official when I was growing up, they would always stay at the ambassador's residence. And now nobody ever stayed with me. I, I think I might have had one official uh, visitor stay with me. Uh, I just think people now tend to come with big delegations, and, and it's gotten much more of a big deal and people seem to just prefer to stay in a hotel the, the residence is maybe about a 20 25 minute drive from the chancery so it's not necessarily the most convenient thing but um 
again, I was uh, excited to, you know, to, to be able to host some of these interesting people and, and that, that, almost, uh, that almost never happened. Um, you know, again, I, I think in a supersized mission like Mexico, it's just very different than it is in a place like Paraguay. And, you know, that cuts both ways. I mean, I said this to people a lot. Um, you know, in, in a smaller embassy, it's a lot more like a family and, um, you know, a close knit community. It's just like growing up in a small town. In a place like Mexico, I think it's the opposite challenge where people feel a little bit isolated sometimes and don't have those strong community ties. So in a sense, it's a bigger city with more cultural offerings and, and, and more to do. But the flip side is that the American community was certainly a lot less uh, cohesive. And, and the American community in Mexico, as you might imagine, is not just you know heavily an embassy or US government community. There's a, a big American private sector community there, student community, you know, tourist community. So you know, it, was, it was very different uh, in that sense. And, and again, that cutting both ways. It's just, you can't say one is better or worse. They're just different. Uh, let me just talk a little bit about my, my tenure there. First of all, you know, the post had been vacant for more than a year before I got there, which, you know, I think is inexcusable for a country like Mexico. Uh, and again, I'm not looking to cast blame on, on anybody, but I do think that in this past administration, posts were left open for way too long. And, you know, the Senate and the White House were kind of pointing fingers at each other. And I don't want to get into that, but I certainly hope that you know, maybe we as an organization can try to do more to try to emphasize the importance of having an ambassador at post, uh, you know, particularly in a, in a place like Mexico, it's just uh, unseemly. And then they took it as a slight. And I know this was, Mexico was hardly unique in this regard. Um, but certainly I was very eager to get there. And I, I went down, you know, I, I, I was confirmed, I think on the 1st of August, uh, they, they made me do, I suppose some of you had to do this too, the, the um, security training out in West Virginia, uh, which is, I don't know, maybe about five days or so. Uh, and then I was uh, sworn in and I was on a plane to Mexico, you know, within, you know, two weeks of my confirmation. Uh, and in fact, I came back then a month later for my official swearing in partly because I just wanted to get to Mexico as quickly as possible and partly because nobody's in Washington in, in uh, mid-August uh, anyway. Um, and in truth, I think I, it's fair to say that I had two very different tenures in Mexico. And I suppose this was true for a lot of my colleagues uh, you know, during the Trump administration. One was before COVID and one was after COVID. Um, you know, it was, it was wonderful arriving in Mexico City. I'd been there but only about 25 years ago and it's one of the great cities of the world. Uh, I went from the airport straight to the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and I, you know, presented some flowers to to Our Lady. You know, I, I something that was just meaningful to me, and I thought would be appreciated by the Mexicans, and it it was. And um, you know, my parents always had a tradition. Uh, the the first night they arrived at a new embassy of hosting at the residence, which then of course was obviously unfurnished, uh, but that only kind of emphasizes the point, uh, a reception where they would greet every single person, the Americans, the local employed staff, everybody uh, that first evening so that everybody doesn't have this question, have you met the new ambassador yet? Uh, and I, I really liked that idea, but 
uh, that was kind of nixed on the advice of my staff that, you know, it's just Mexico is too big to make that work. The reception line would just be impossible. Parking in the area is not great. It was, you know, on a, like a Thursday evening of the week. And so anyway, we, we did a town hall instead. I, I still kind of regret not being able to do that, but I did make a point those first few weeks of going around to every, you know, part of the embassy, one subdivision at a time and shaking everyone's hand and just introducing myself so that people would uh, hopefully meet the new ambassador relatively uh, quickly and, and not have to do awkward introductions in an elevator at some later point. Again, we've outgrown the chancery building in Mexico City. So you know, we're somewhat spread out all around town in, in different uh, places, which made that harder. But I think people always uh, appreciate that. And, and, and I like, I think it's just important for the ambassador to kind of plant the flag everywhere and just, you know, reach out and, and uh, introduce himself or herself to, to everyone. So, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed that and thought that was a good use of my time in those, in those uh, first few weeks. Um, you know, I, I don't know how it was for all of you. I think security has gotten a little bit overboard uh, in the days, particularly since Benghazi. Uh, you know, diplomatic security is now a huge bureaucracy of its own. Again, that's a real change for my, my parents' days. And uh, I had eight people with me at all times when I was out and about. I had an advance car with two folks. In my car was the driver and the bodyguard up front. And then there was a follow-up car with uh, four people. Uh, half were embassy employees, half were uh, Mexican National Guard um, people. And one of the curious things is that even though I had a big armored BMW, it always surprised me that the American ambassador had a German car. Um, you know, that was unheard of back again in the day. It was always the latest American car. Um, but, um, and then there was nothing for the spouse or, or, or the family. So my wife, when she arrived, was taking Ubers and the kids. Um, you know, it seemed like a, a little bit of an odd uh, separation or an odd way to distribute the resources. And again, I think, this was something that really struck home to me was the, the, the change role of the spouse over the time since my folks were doing this. And, you know, I understand a lot of spouses now have careers of their own and, and don't want to do the whole diplomatic thing, which I respect and which is totally fine. But I think it's kind of too bad now that there's no support for a spouse like my wife, Caroline, who actually did want to do it and did want to go to national day receptions and did want to, um, you know, get out and about and, and the fact that there is no support, I mean, no car and driver for the spouse. And again, I think what happened over the years was that some, some people wound up abusing that. And so the whole thing got taken away. Uh, but, you know, I think our, the pendulum from my perspective has, has swung too far, you know? Um, so my family was with me for the first few weeks and then the, the kids had to go back to school in the States to finish up some, some schooling there. And my wife went back with them. So I was alone for most of the first few months, which actually turned out to be okay because I was settling in and then they had a separate, when they eventually came at Christmas time and the kids went to school down there for that second semester, it was, I was kind of settled by the time they had to get settled. So we weren't all kind of going through this at once. Uh, so I think that worked out pretty well for us. But from the beginning, you know, I, I introduced my family on social media. I took the ambassadors, uh, the, the official Twitter handle, which had about 25,000 followers when I got there. I started posting pictures of us going around the city and enjoying some of the cultural sites. 
Uh, I quickly went up to about 40,000 just within a few weeks. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I got, I posted a picture of us on the floating gardens at Xochimilco and that got 10,000 likes. I think before that on my personal Twitter account, I'd never gotten more than two likes. So it was a big eye opener just to the power of social media. And particularly when you kind of let people in, you know, not just giving policy pronouncements, but also just talking about how you and your family are enjoying the country. It's not for everybody, uh, but but I enjoyed it and it seemed to go over well. Where I really got a lot of followers was when I said, wait a second. So, you know, now I have 40,000 followers. I'm looking at my friend here, the American ambassador to Greece, uh, Jeff Pyatt, and he has 140. How can Mexico with 130 million people um, have fewer followers for the American ambassador? So I got a friendly competition going between Mexico and Greece. Um, you know, before I knew it, I, I gained another, I don't know, you know, 25, 30, 40,000 followers. And I was able to, uh, I think, uh, bypass Jeff at 150,000 uh, at about, you know, six months into my tenure. And, and the Mexicans would always ask me, how are you doing against the guy in Greece? And uh, ended up my tenure there with about 280,000. Uh, which was, you know, I thought that was just a great way to connect with with people. And and one thing I liked particularly was I get a lot of consular questions on there. You know, people would respond to whatever I post and say, well, hey, I've got a visa problem, blah, blah, blah. I would just, uh, I created a way for the, con for me just to basically refer through Twitter those uh, questions to a consular account that was set up that would then answer the questions. You know, I think even though a lot of the answers were on the official embassy website, nobody can find it. And I felt like that was a great way to just kind of connect with people and bring, you know, information about consular issues in, in a way that people uh, is just more accessible to, to folks. Um, one of the things that was very interesting to me about Mexico in general, and I don't know how all of you uh, felt with your experiences, um, is that, you know, when my parents were doing this back in the 70s and 80s, they were going out to social events I don't know, four or five nights a week. And I was, you know, steeled for that, not looking forward to it, but ready for it. Uh, and, you know, lots of formal black tie events. They would give big black tie dinners at the residence. And um, there was almost none of that in Mexico. I got very few invitations to social events uh, in the evenings. And again, maybe this is a Mexican thing that that's kind of considered family time. You know, most of the national day receptions were more around the lunchtime uh, which made it just very hard to break up the day. But, um, you know, my, my wife and I wound up making a, so, so some personal friends over time and we did things with them, but there was just a lot less entertaining. Uh, and I'd be curious if that was true for, for other people as well in, in uh, recent years. I did like to, um, you know, get out and about and certainly I, I ultimately managed to travel to all 32 states of Mexico. And, and I think people just enjoyed that. I think people enjoyed seeing that, I was obviously enjoying myself in the job and, and, and being there. Um, you know, obviously with the pandemic, you know, things came to an abrupt halt and basically, you know, spent the first three months just hold up in the residence. I mean, we went down almost overnight in March of 2020 uh, to, you know, only about 10% capacity. It was critical, particularly in Mexico, to keep that kind of capacity on the consular side because there are programs like the H-2A visa program that sends a lot of agricultural workers up here. And you know, as soon as we started shutting down our embassy operations, I had a phone call from the Secretary of Agriculture like, hey, the, the ag sector is freaking out. Uh, what, you know, what can we do to make sure that continues? I said, Mr. Secretary, let me give you my assurance that I understand that that's a national security issue for our country. And you know, we will make sure that the embassy continues to process this. And to their credit, 
they did. Uh, we had a tremendous consular team, particularly up in the Consulate General in Monterey, that that kept that program going, and and you know no temporary workers were were prevented from proceeding to their work in the United States because of the the you know cutbacks uh, in in person personnel at the at the mission. Uh, but obviously, it became a very different job when you're mostly working from home, uh, and you know, it got a little bit crazy because the, the President Trump invited President Lopez Obrador to go uh, visit him in the White House uh, in July of last year. So in the middle of the pandemic, and the President of Mexico accepted. He flew commercially because he had gotten rid of his uh, Mexican jet. Not only did he fly commercially, but at that point, there was no longer a nonstop flight between Mexico City and Washington. So we had to change planes in Atlanta. So you know, that was, it was very, very challenging, as you might expect. And I know some of you on the phone call were ambassadors under COVID uh, and others of you not, but it was a particularly challenging time to be an ambassador. And, you know, for instance, our 4th of July reception had to go virtual, uh, which, you know, in a sense was a, a bummer because it's a, it's a wonderful uh, event. Um, but by the same token, it kind of pushed us to think about it in new ways. So I did, I took the budget we were going to use for that and I did a video instead. And, you know, my understanding is that that, that was viewed across different social media platforms close to a million times. So in a sense, instead of just seeing, you know, maybe 1500 people at a big reception at the residence and trashing the lawn, um, you know, maybe it is more effective to do things virtually nowadays. And, and or maybe you could do both, uh, but, but certainly, you know, I tried to think creatively about ways to uh, continue doing our mission during the pandemic, because obviously the issues didn't go away. Um, just to talk uh, briefly about some of the issues, and, and we can maybe get into this more in the Q&A session to the extent that, that those of you in the call are interested in them. I mean, the three big ones in Mexico uh, are trade, uh, migration, and drugs. Not necessarily in that order, that kind of changed uh, every day. But you know there was some good news on the trade front. Certainly, you know, uh, as Philip mentioned, the, the USMCA went into force. Uh, you know, up to the, up to my early months, there were still congressional delegations coming. It was not a done deal yet by any means. So we got that thing over the finish line. Uh, and you know, frankly, I think a lot of people don't understand that Mexico, Mexico, Canada, and China tend to rotate being our number one commercial partner at any given time. And and. In 2019, it was actually Mexico. So the, the commercial relationship with Mexico is huge. And that caused you know, huge uh, problems during the pandemic, and particularly to keep those supply chains open after both our countries shut down and went to essential industries only. And that was probably, I think the hardest time for me was just trying to you know, use spit and chewing gum to keep those supply chains going. I get these frantic calls from US CEOs if we don't get our Mexican parts in the next you know, two days, we have to shut down our operations here. And, and somehow we made it happen, which was uh, great. You know, on the migration front, I was fortunate in a way that I missed the biggest confrontation between our countries, uh, which happened in the spring before I got there when a lot of the caravans were coming through because President Lopez Obrador had announced when he got in, in late 2018, uh, a relaxation of uh, the southern border. You know, we welcome our Central American friends. Well, they came by the hundreds of thousands and but weren't interested in staying in Mexico, kept going to our border. And finally, President Trump said enough is enough and threatened tariffs. And by the time I got there, that had worked itself out. And we actually had a very good cooperative relationship with Mexico that that really, I think, deterred people from making the trip. So for the most part, 
you know, that problem was, was already mostly solved when I got there. We were very concerned, you know, when COVID hit that we wouldn't have big movements of medical refugees and managed to keep that under control with a, a, a program that allowed us to expel people, you know, immediately because of the, the, the pandemic. Finally, probably my greatest frustration was in the counter-narcotics area. Um, that is just a very difficult issue. I'm very frustrated at our government, which I feel doesn't really have a, a, a comprehensive strategy to attack this problem. But, you know, DEA, God bless the men and women of that agency. They, they, they you know, they care, they do a great job, but they're in the Department of Justice. And they, I think, see their role as basically an Elliot Ness role of catching a bad guy, having them do the perp walk and, and, and having them do time. And that's an important part of the strategy. You don't want those people to, to feel comfortable, but I don't think that's going to solve the whole problem. And so that's one. When, when, when Philip was introducing me, he said, you know, Chris uh, completed his mission in Mexico. I, I, I feel in a lot of ways, especially I was only there a year and a half, that I didn't complete my mission. There was a lot of things that we were still doing, making good progress, but it was a frustration. I'd say, I, I, you know, my mission terminated, uh, but, but there was a lot of things on all these topics, you know, commercial uh, migration trade where, you know, I was, you know, I felt like I was really getting things going, but you can't uh, generally complete things in a year and a half, and especially once the pandemic hit. So, you know, that was a frustration, but it goes with the job. So I have to say for me, those were, you know, the, the, the happiest uh, times of my life. It was just such an honor to, to be an ambassador, represent our country, uh, it's the experience I'm sure all of you have had and and why I'm, I'm just delighted to be part of this club. I think with that, I've gone over the amount of time I'd hope to speak. I hope I haven't been overly boring. Uh, and why don't we just uh, go to, to Q's and A's now? Phil, I think you're on mute. Philip. Fixed. Correct? Okay. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for uh, a very insightful and personal uh, discussion of uh, your tenure in Mexico City. Uh, we have a couple of questions from members already submitted, uh, and let me just take them in the order in which they've been received. Uh, Ambassador, take them in the order of, of easiest to hardest. <laughs> well, actually, uh, no, the first two are equally hard. So okay, let's, let's I'm used to hard questions. It goes with the turf. Um, uh, uh, ambassador A.B. Culverhouse, our former ambassador to Australia, asks, which of our strategic adversaries presents the greatest challenge to U.S. interests in Mexico? I would say China, not surprisingly. I mean, you know, I, I, I remember at one point I got wind that there was a, you know, a Russian uh, kind of a, a, a junior varsity operation to try to, you know, send disinformation to the states but but you know china is in everybody's mind one of the things i thought was very effective in the last administration was that i think across the world there was a very unified message that we have to think long and hard about the china challenge i'll say though you know having attended a number of these conversations talked to a lot of colleagues i think for me in mexico the kind of you know geopolitical um uh, you know, you know, China, Russia issue was was just less of a, it loomed less large. And I don't know if that's just because other issues loomed 
relatively larger, like you know, migration and drugs and, and getting USMCA over the, the, the threshold. China has not made the same push in Mexico as it has in many other parts of the world, including in, in Latin America. I think you know, they, they kind of know that the US you know, has such a dominant presence there. So I would say in terms of you know, direct foreign investment in Mexico, China may be in the top 10, but may not be. It may be around number 10. I mean, it's behind countries like Italy and Spain and Australia. Um, so it, it has not been a focus for China. And one thing that was interesting for me, I thought the Mexicans would try to get leverage against us by trying to kind of play us off against China and say, well, look, you know, we have those guys over there who are willing to offer us all kinds of goodies uh, if you don't, you know, loosen, lighten up on us a little bit. But the Mexican president actually said the opposite when I presented credentials. He said, you know something, we realize that we're on your team, that we have a shared border, a shared history. And, you know, so he did not try to play that card at all. So, you know, while I, I think it's important, you know, to, you know, I, I, I went out and I did the, you know, the, the 5G Huawei dog and pony show. That was actually one of the worst experiences I had, though, I have to say, you know, telling Carlos Slim that, that, you know, he should not do 5G with a Huawei because I kind of felt like my talking points were all like, don't do 5G with Huawei. And I didn't, you know, he said, well, okay, who do you want me to do it with? You don't have a, uh, you know, another 5G competitor or another 5G uh, alternative. And, you know, my talking points didn't cover that area. So, you know, uh, but, but, I, but I, did, I do feel like, you know, I know Keith Kroc, you know, followed up with me quite a lot. I mean, I do feel like, you know, this is an area where the needle probably moved permanently that the United States government institutionally kind of has really recognized China as a strategic competitor. And I, I think all over the world, certainly, again, for me in Mexico, it wasn't as big a deal as it was for people, you know, where China was, you know, becoming their number one investor but it was certainly on my radar screen. Okay, great answer. Uh, ambassador Tom Korlogos, our former ambassador uh, to Belgium. Uh, Another friend of mine, I'm, I'm getting all my friends, AB, Tom Korlogos. Sure, someone you surely know from your law career in Washington says, hello, Chris, welcome back. Congratulations on your service. You had it in your DNA. So Tom's question is, if you could give us a quick rundown on the cartels. Uh, we know from the media what they do, but perhaps you could give us some insights into how they operate. How are they funded? How do they get away with what they do, including coyotes throwing kids over the wall? It's a very good question. And you know, I think it's a very important question because I think we throw around the word cartel a lot. And you know, I think anybody who is involved in uh, criminal activity in Mexico is generally regarded as a cartel here. But just, you know, to some extent, that's a little bit of a misnomer because that suggests a pretty tightly structured organization. And, and in, some, in some cases, these are much more loosely uh, affiliated groups. Often they start with a family base. Uh, so I think it's a mistake to just think of the Mexican cartels as um, you know, very uh, tight-knit organizations. And, I, and this is something that I, you know, I would get intel, intel and, and, and other reporting from Washington talking kind of loosely about the cartels. And I would kind of bounce back from Mexico City. Well, could you be more specific what you're uh, talking about? But I mean, when they arrested the former Secretary of Defense of Mexico, Cienfuegos, um, during my tenure 
you know, for drug trafficking, you know, the, the indictment says, oh, he was with this cartels. I mean, he was with like two guys. I mean, you know, every, everything gets, once it gets called a cartel, it's like everybody thinks it's Sinaloa, right? Or, or, or CJNG. Uh, so anyway, that's just a kind of a caveat in general that I think it's a problem in our discourse that we, we kind of use that term very loosely. Again, but without underestimating the threat. Look, it's a big problem in Mexico. And, you know, it's hard as the American ambassador to say, guys, you know, this is a problem not just for us. It's a problem for you because these folks have effective control over large parts of your country. The estimates go anywhere from you know 35 to 40 percent of the country. You know, obviously, people can argue what effective control means, but I think there's no question that they play a very large role in the, in the government of Mexico. The current president, Lopez Obrador, I think, has a very ambitious domestic agenda, and which is mostly about social programs. It's kind of like he wants his great society in Mexico. And he sees the cartels, I think, to continue the analogy, as his Vietnam, which it has been for some of his predecessors. And so I think he wants to try, he sees that as a distraction from, from focusing on his agenda. So he has basically adopted a pretty um, laissez-faire attitude towards them, uh, which you know is troubling to, to our government, obviously. Um, I, I think it's a big problem for Mexico, but they, they've also gotten quite brazen. I mean, while I was there last summer, the CJNG cartel, the, the Guadalajara cartel, uh, actually ambushed uh, the head of Mexico City's uh, security ministry, uh, I don't know, maybe about 10 blocks from the residence on Avenida, Avenida Paseo de la Reforma, which is like one of the main drags of Mexico City in a very exclusive residential neighborhood at about six in the morning. And, you know, they, they didn't kill him, fortunately. They, they, they killed, you know, some of his security detail and some passersby. Uh, but I mean, the, there had never been a brazen attack like that in the heart of Mexico City. And somewhat to my shock, the Mexican central government basically did nothing. Uh, they, they didn't say, you know, enough is enough. We can't put up with this. I mean, I think AMLO is very insistent on trying to avoid that kind of conflict. And as you also may remember, one of the, again, worst days during my tenure was when they caught the son of Chapo in, it was the Mexican military that did this, that they don't really have much of a great police force in Mexico. So a lot of actions are done by the Mexican military, uh, even, you know, domestic actions. Uh, but they kind of sent a military SWAT team in, and this was up in Culiacan in, in Sinaloa, and they had captured him. And then almost, you know, within minutes, the, 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 you know, his organization had uh, surrounded the perimeter of the area and, you know, had taken hostages and basically the Mexican government backed down and let him go because they didn't want to have more widespread, widespread bloodshed in Culiacan. It was, it was a, just a terrible moment. But, you know, the truth is the Mexican military was outgunned. And one of my concerns as ambassador was to try to address the flow of illegal weapons from our country into Mexico which allows the cartels to be armed to the teeth. I mean, we're not talking about little pistols. We're talking about military style, you know, 50 caliber, um, you know, weapons, the kind you see in Somalia on the back of the technicals. And so, 
you know, certainly, you know, I respect as a lawyer uh, our, our Second Amendment rights in this country, but the right, whatever the right to, 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 to bear arms means in the United States, there is certainly no Second Amendment right to export arms to another country in violation of our own export control laws. And, you know, I tried to really um, beef up cooperation in that area. But, you know, look, again, I, I think the cartels are a real menace for both countries. Um, but the problem is that we can't do it on our own in somebody else's sovereign country. And, you know, the Mexicans are very nationalistic. They're not going to let the Americans in to take care of the cartels. Believe me, President Trump literally offered that point blank to President López Obrador. He says, listen, I'll send our people down whenever you give me the green light and we will take out the, you know, the cartels. I'm not sure it's that easy because, again, I think if you cut the head off the snake, the snake has five heads all of a sudden. Uh, but, you know, I, I do think that there is more that we have to do in both countries, you know, to try to weaken these organizations, particularly on the money front. I mean, people have been talking about this for 30 years. I mean, those of you who were ambassadors 30 years ago probably remember that people were talking about it then. I mean, it's frustrating to me. There were many times when I would attend meetings on these issues of, you know, counter narcotics and, and you know, money laundering and, and, and all this. And, and I would say, well, you know, can I have the notes of the last meeting on this? And I get notes back to, you know, 15 years and it's the same issues. They, they hadn't changed. And, you know, so it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's just very, it's very frustrating. But, you know, the, 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 there has to be the political will in Mexico to go after them. And, you know, in a sense, they were, you know, as long as there is such a strong demand for drugs in our country, I, you know, this is the Mexican perspective, which I think is not without s some merit. I mean, it's not an either or proposition. You've got to try to attack it on both ends. But, you know, th there is going to be a way drug smugglers will find a way and, and just arresting some is not going to really solve the problem if there is a, you know, you know trillion dollar market for this kind of stuff over the border. So it's, you know, that's a long slog. And, and one of the things I'd like to speak out and write about more is I just don't think that the United States has a comprehensive, coherent uh, counter narcotic strategy. And, and I don't blame that on any particular administration. I, that's not a partisan statement. I think we as a country, uh, even though it seems to me the kind of issue that should be a bipartisan issue. Um, but it's certainly not something that we can outsource to Mexico to solve our problem. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, outsourcing anything like this is, is very difficult, but we need to do what we can within our own control. Sorry for the long answer complicated question. You asked yeah. about hard questions and easy questions. I said neither of them was really easy. Um, let me uh, take you back to something that you uh, shared with us about President Lopez Obrador at the moment of your uh, credentials presentation, that uh, he abjured playing China and the U.S. off against each other. This is kind of paradoxical for a populist president, uh, much of whose election rhetoric for years had been hostile to the United States and the role that the United States plays in Mexico. Uh, you'd actually think he might be instinctively inclined otherwise. But you represented the United States uh, at a moment, admittedly and sadly, only beginning about halfway through President Trump's administration. But you represented uh, us to a country that is one of the very most important to us, although we don't always treat it that way, and certainly has a great impact domestically on the US. Uh, but at a moment when our president 
had been very critical before election, during the election, and after the election of Mexico, and during whose early presidency, Mexico elected a president who had been rhetorically very hostile to the United States. Yet during those two administrations, we accomplished some remarkable things together. Uh, one, kind of uh, maybe a little bit predictable, the renegotiation of the US-Canada-Mexico free trade agreement, because that's important to all three countries. But one very unpredictable, the uh, migration cooperation across borders that you wouldn't necessarily have thought a Mexican government headed by AMLO would have been willing to do. What was it like to represent the US to Mexico in this particularly complex and convoluted environment? And what was sort of your strategy for handling this locally? Well, it was a fascinating moment for the reasons you state, and, and it could have gone off in a very different direction. In fact, I think most people expected it to basically go off in a very ugly uh, direction. In fact, AMLO during the campaign had written a book called Oye Trump, which is basically called like, hey, listen up Trump, which was pretty defiant towards Trump. But I think, you know, that was his campaign mode. And, and once he got into office, I think something that was very clear to him was that it was in his interest politically to have a good relationship with the United States. I mean, I think, you know, that looms, the United States looms large in the lives of all Mexicans. And, you know, I think by now, anti-American rhetoric, I think, has has toned down in Mexico as so many Mexicans have now a brother or a cousin who lives there. And, and you know, the, the, the links between the countries have become so much stronger. You know, the, our economies have become more intertwined. So AMLO, I think, made a very calculated political decision that he was going to have good relations with the United States. I think that's why, you know, he stated that very frankly to me in that first conversation. Uh, and the truth is, beyond that, I think he and President Trump actually have a lot in common. I think they both recognize that. I mean, they both came into office as anti-establishment candidates. AMLO formed his own party, and President Trump basically had a you know a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. And so they, they both had that kind of outsider perspective attacking what they called, you know, a, a corrupt domestic elite. And I think they just, you know, that... that I think they kind of um, admired each other or they, they, they felt a certain um, sympathy towards each other, a certain connection. And, you know, AMLO, you know, was very, you know, I think he understood that for President Trump, the migration issue was a key issue. And I think was willing then to help him on that. I mean, the truth is AMLO kind of set about, as I kind of referred to briefly, the migration crisis that we had in early 2019 by his own policies, which made it easier to get into Mexico. And so I think he realized that, you know, he was to blame for that, but never before has the United States and Mexico had the kind of migration cooperation that, that we have now. On the other hand, it's a new phenomenon where the migratory flows are at this point, we're becoming major, majority non-Mexican for the first time in history. Uh, and, you know, Mexico has seen itself as the migrant champion because it provided the migrants. But now all of a sudden, you know, within Mexico, you're seeing people from Kazakhstan, from Bangladesh, from Brazil, from Haiti, from Cuba, you know, coming into Mexico. And this is a, a new phenomenon that I think the Mexican view of migration is changing. And people were starting to think about, is this good for us? And 
So, you know, AMLO made his first and so far only foreign trip to visit President Trump in the White House at the height of the pandemic amidst considerable domestic criticism that he was, you know, favoring President Trump by going during an election year. Uh, and, you know, I, I think I think he just liked President Trump because I think he felt like President Trump was a straight shooter with him. And President Trump, you know, we were, I think, very respectful of Mexican sovereignty. I mean, there was many things that AMLO was doing domestically in terms of, um, you know, the energy sector. And, you know, I, it was a very care, a very tricky thing. I mean, I try, you know, I want to protect American companies and investors. That's part of my job. But I also don't want to get involved in Mexican uh, domestic issues. So, you know, I think he respected the fact that, you know, he knew that the migration issue was important to President Trump. And then apart from that, we weren't giving him a hard time on a gazillion other issues. And I think they, they kind of understood each other that way. So, you know, I'd like to think it was all my diplomatic prowess that allowed everybody to come together and sing Kumbaya. But, but um, I, you know, I think more generally, they're, they're, you know, interestingly, the opposition in Mexico, even though AMLO is a leftist, again, he, he kind of came from, um, you know, kind of a populist left. The, the more traditional conservative party was totally in the tank for Hillary Clinton. I mean, you had people, this is the pond you know, in the pond, like wearing, you know, Hillary t-shirts, like, so interestingly, I think AMLO saw a lot of his domestic opponents more in sync with the Democratic Party. Uh, again, it was just, it's, it, it, you know, politics makes weird bedfellows. And I think we saw that in that example. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, in that, in that connection, let's continue a bit further with AMLO as we uh, uh, utilize the rest of our time here. Uh, some superficially have suggested, those who perhaps don't know Mexico very well, uh, have suggested that, that President Trump's verbal you know, criticism and rhetorical hostility to Mexico over a long time helped produce the phenomena of AMLO, ostensibly the most uh, anti-American or truculent president in modern Mexican history, except he's turned out not to be that. But those who maybe know Mexico a bit better see AMLO as a kind of the more of a natural reaction, natural consequence of the failures of the recent PAN and Institutional Revolutionary Party pre-governments that preceded yeah. him. Uh, and some of those failures or some of those scandals had been pointed out recently by testimony given uh, by the uh, 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 general counsel of Pemex, uh, Emilio Lozoya, uh, who alleged all kinds of uh, corrupt deals made by Pemex, the Mexican National Oil Company, with officials of both the PRI and the PAN. Could you explain to us where AMLO really comes from and how that background in Mexico? Yeah, be sure. And without getting too into the, 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 the weeds of Mexican domestic politics, you know, the, the pre, the, the, this is again, a, a, a great name, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, right? I mean, talk about an oxymoron, right? But, you know, it actually was a perfect name because it, it was the party that emerged out of the ashes of the Mexican Revolution, but then ruled Mexico with, you know, a pretty iron fist for the next 80 years. And um, they lost in the year 2000 to Vicente Fox and the PAN, which had been kind of a conservative, like, House opposition. It's kind of a Christian Democratic Party, 
But again, you know, they, they were kind of propped up so that the, the PRI could show to the whole world, like, hey, look, we have an opposition party here. And they were totally unprepared to govern. And they, they didn't really, when they came in in 2000, change any of the fundamentals of Mexican society. So, you know, AMLO calls what he is doing now the fourth transformation of Mexico. And I think in a way, after the uh, independence, the, gears of, the, 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 the wars of reform in the mid 19th century and the revolution in the early 20th century, in a way, he is capitalizing on the fact that the pre, the PAN, excuse me, which came in to substitute the pre in the early 2000s, failed to take a broom and clean house in Mexico. And there was a pent up demand for this after 80 years, even to the point of, you know, rewriting the histories to, 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 to you know, put more balance from what the official story of the, the pre had been. So I think AMLO is basically, he, he's totally a creature of Mexican domestic politics. You know, the, Trump had nothing to do with AMLO's rise to power. It was basically a failure of the two parties that, that you know, pre for 80 years and then since uh, 2000, they'd alternated in power, but there, there was no change, no, no, no substantial change. And I think the average Mexican was just fed up with the corruption and, and turned to AMLO who was kind of one of these perennial candidates. He was kind of like the Harold Stassen of Mexico. I mean, he'd run, I don't know how many times, but you know, he offered real change and he's giving them some pretty significant change. Um, but you know, another interesting thing he told me in that first conversation is I'm a domestic president. Uh, I'm not really interested in international affairs. And I think the best foreign policy is a good domestic policy. And I think he's been very true to that. But again, I think that shows that you know, Trump, all these outside forces in the world really had nothing to do with AMLO. And he's not really interested in that. One of the things that I found the most aggravating was that during my tenure, I got a memo produced from somewhere in the U.S. government, I won't get into details, basically saying like AMLO is looking to, you know, be the leader of a Latin American leftist coalition against the United States. I said, this is ridiculous. This is totally not correct. I said, like, how does this even come to be? Like, how did you know, I'm the American ambassador to Mexico. I think this is totally wrong. And how I'm told this was in the president's like daily briefing. How, how could that be? Um, so you know, that's a whole other issue that I'm sure some of you may be able to relate to. But, um, you know, whatever AMLO's flaws, he's certainly not looking to play a big role on the international stage. Unlike, you know, let's say a Chavez who always kind of wanted to do that. Um. Uh, we've got time for maybe one last question. And since you mentioned the arrest of the defense secretary, former defense secretary Cienfuegos uh, by US authorities on your watch for involvement in drugs trafficking, uh, I can't help but ask, since after that arrest, uh, the Mexican Congress enacted some legislation that significantly cramps the ability of US uh, agents to operate in Mexico and cooperate with their Mexican counterparts. Is that going to be a big problem in our future uh, future efforts together uh, to combat drugs trafficking and cartel activity? Yeah, let me take a step back in answering that question because I think this audience will find this very interesting. So on the day I arrived in Mexico, as I said, I got from the I went from the plane to the Basilica to a town hall at the Chancery, and I you know said hello to everybody. Then I went up to my office for the first time, and. You know, the DCM kind of shut the doors. And Mr. Ambassador, something I need to tell you about the, the um, U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York has indicted, secretly indicted under seal, the former Mexican Defense Secretary, who the Defense Secretary in Mexico is not a civilian as it is in the United States. It's actually the senior most military officer. So it's the head of the Mexican army is the 
uh, is the defense secretary. And this person had been in the previous government, but he had only been out of office about what, you know, uh, six months by this time. It was still relatively, you know, early in the Amlo administration. And I said, no, 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 no. You're not gonna, I'm not gonna have this guy like uh, arrested before, I'm not gonna sign off on something like this that I don't know anything about. Like I remember from history class reading about the Bay of Pigs and I'm not gonna basically just sign off on something that, that seems that I can certainly tell is a very far reaching import and that I have not been fully briefed on. So I said, okay, well, let me talk to my military attache about how this is gonna affect our relations with the Mexican military. They said, oh no, you can't Mr. Ambassador because this is all, uh, it's a sealed indictment. So for grand jury secrecy rules, which I'm familiar uh, with from my days as a lawyer, you know, you can't talk to anybody about this. So I'm like, well, this is ridiculous. Like you're telling me that you were planning to arrest somebody and I can't even talk to anybody, not even my own military attache. Like what, what's the point of having a military attache then? So what we wound up doing was kind of a half-assed solution where, you know, I, I got the people from the U.S. attorney's office on the phone. They walked through the case with me, sent me some of the evidence, had to get me you know, signed into the grand jury secrecy stuff. It was all kind of crazy. And, you know, ultimately, I kind of said, well, he's already indicted. I can't really undo that. So I just said, okay, I hope he never goes to the States. I mean, it was one of those, you know, in retrospect, I wish I had fought this all the way to the attorney general and, and, and uh, you know, to stop this. Because as one might expect, I mean, the people who really made this decision to indict him were people only in the Department of Justice, right? But whether or not we indict the former head of the Mexican military has huge implications for our relations with Mexico across the board. But nobody else was brought into this discussion. I mean, I was just informed of the fact, but I wasn't asked for my views on, on whether or not it was a good thing. And it turned out my instinct was correct, that it was a terribly disastrous thing that, you know, the Mexican military basically... Um, you know, uh, went to Lopez Obrador and said, you know, you better support us on this. This is really important to us. And he's actually using the military for a lot of his domestic projects. So it became really important to him. And so, you know, he pushed through this bill to reduce, uh, you know, contact with the DEA and our law enforcement agencies. So again, this is, I think, a classic example of where a failure of consultation on the side of the U.S. government has put us in a much worse position overall. And, you know, this guy was out of power. The allegations were that he worked with this cartel that was like two guys in Nayarit state uh, who, you know, not helpfully for our case, had actually been attacked by the, Mex the prior Mexican government while he was in government and killed by the Mexican government. So they wiped out that cartel. Um, and there was no evidence of any unjust enrichment. He wasn't living in a mansion. So, you know, it, 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 to me, one of my great takeaways, and I'd like to talk publicly about this, is that we, the executive branch, needs to be better coordinated when it does this. I heard other horror stories that they indicted the brother of the president of Honduras and told the embassy in Tegucigalpa the night before it happened. Like, we cannot expect to have a coherent foreign policy with that kind of, you know, keystone cops approach. And to his credit, the attorney general reviewed the matter and sent the guy back and said, you know something? The, the, the overall interests of our law enforcement cooperation with Mexico are, are bigger than this one guy. But again, you know, it, I think it is very problematic. I think at the end of the day, tempers will cool and notwithstanding the law, you know, we'll, we'll make it work. Because I just think both countries don't really have any other solution. But it was a real, I think, unnecessary shot. In, in, we, we shot ourselves in the foot.
Chris, we've reached the end of our time. Thank you very much for that answer. And thank you for a bravura presentation to our members, uh, our audience today. Thanks for making the time available and welcome to membership in the Council of American Ambassadors. I am honored to be part of this. I think there's so much that we can discuss. I mean, I wish that I had had many more contacts, kind of horizontal contacts with other ambassadors out in the field, as opposed to just vertical contacts with Washington. I think there's a lot we can talk about to try to make American diplomacy more effective. So I welcome being part of this club and part of that conversation. Well, welcome. Thank you very much. And we hope we'll be able, thanks to efforts like yours, to stimulate even more discussion on those topics among ourselves and with our colleagues in government. With that, Thank everyone for I thank everyone for joining us today on this program and Chris for his time and bid you all farewell. Have a great afternoon. Bye -bye. Thanks for joining everyone.